Hi, this is Yolanda. I'm sharing with you the memoirs of President Joseph Smith III, 1832 to 1914. And we're on chapter 45, page 468, the chapter heading is Revelations, and this subheading is 1890. Thank you for joining me. Enjoy. Concerning the revelation given April 1890, I may say that the question of ordaining high priests and a certain epistle of the Twelve, which had been deferred for the two conferences previous, had been discussed in the Council of the First Presidency and the Twelve, succeeding which the matters that perplexed were submitted with other questions to the Lord for instruction. The revelation received in answer was accepted by this joint council and presented to the conference. It gave instruction regarding disposition of the disturbing matters as well as other important directions pertaining to the further organisation of the church. See section 120, Doctrine and Covenants. As I have before stated, my intention not to incorporate these various revelations in this chapter, I will content myself with presenting only, only the above introductory matter in regard to this communication. It will show that while some may deem it irregular or even illegal for me in response to a request coming from a separate or joint quorum or council without the concurrence of the body of the church as a whole, to have presented an appeal to the Lord for divine direction. The conditions of the work as shown by the instruction received in the revelation amply justified me in making that appeal and the presidency later in giving to the various councils and the body that which the spirit vouchsafed to give in response to the one authorised to receive and transmit the word of the Lord for and to the church. A careful reading of this document will show that without a goodly share of the spirit of revelation, the matters presented were beyond our human sagacity or priestly wisdom to outline or determine, and for this reason, without argument upon my part or any effort to enforce a valuable judgment, I commend a careful study and thoughtful consideration of its various parts and positions. The fact that the revelation was received and became a law to the church after passing the offices prescribed in the law is in itself a sufficient confirmation of the method and origin of the appeal and also of the nature of the wording of the document itself. Next heading, 1885. In reference to section 121, it seems sufficient for me to state, in addition to the explanation set forth in the section itself, that the consideration of the questions involved was pressed upon me by conditions which apparently demanded and justified an open presentation to the body of the dictations of the Spirit in regard to them. Instead of submitting the communication first to the various quorums, as had been customary, this was all that was claimed for it, and my heart has ever been grateful for the fact that involving references to persons, as the section does, taken as a whole, 
It was effective in settling vexatious questions and in establishing positions in church procedure and government sufficiently ample to govern under similar circumstances thereafter the entire history of the church and its work. Next heading, 1894. The Revelation section 122, Doctrine and Covenants, was asked for and given at a time when there was considerable controversy in regard to church procedure and the inactivity of certain persons holding leading office in the body. Bishop George A. Blakesley had died. Bishop Edmund L. Kelly had been recognised as acting presiding bishop and Edwin A. Blakesley, son of the former officer, had been chosen and ordained as his counsellor. The presidency, once composed of Brother Blair, my brother David and myself, was held by some to be objectionable for the reason that my brother, through illness, incapacitated for acting in his office, had been released, giving rise again to the question whether or not that quorum could be considered as functioning properly, a question that disturbed the minds of many. When the message came, it again announced that my afflicted brother was in the hands of the Lord and should there remain until his will was wrought in the matter. For similar reasons, some had considered that since Brother Thomas W. Smith had suffered a stroke of paralysis and was incapable of acting with his quorum, that body was also crippled in its work. The same wisdom that decided in regard to David was manifest in his case, the statement being that Brother T.W. was in the hands of the Lord and if he recovered sufficiently would again take his position in the quorum, his bishopric to be continued for a season. An important feature of this revelation is that the ministry of all grades was chided for the very evident and unnecessary divergence of opinion existed between, existing between them in regard to the application of the revelations which had been received. In these matters it seemed wise that direct definition should be given in order that they might be more clearly understood. As a measure to accomplish this, the twelve were directed to stay on at Lamoni for a season and continue in joint council with the presidency until the matters in agitation could be disposed of. This was accomplished and the result of their council actions was published and later embodied in what is known as section 123 in the Doctrine and Covenants. It will be observed that... I will start again. It will be observed that it doesn't say that at all. I will start again. It will be observed by those who read the revelation closely that in it the official position occupied by the presidency, and more especially that occupied by myself, was presented to the church with an admonition to the people amounting almost to a reproachful charge that they should not disregard the office nor the judgment of the offices upon whom it was plainly stated rested the burden of their care. They were charged to give greater heed to such officers that the usefulness of the latter might not be injured or lessened. I may remark that this was in fact the first notice of the kind presented in any of the revelations. 
If anyone is disposed to question the integrity of the statement as containing reference to the difficulties of the presidency, I request that he please read the statements made by me at the delivery of the communication, wherein is disclosed the fact that I had taken my troubles to the Lord in fasting and prayer. This should be sufficient in my judgment to clear the mind of doubt as to its application and of the other injurious implication. There is an admonition in the message to the effect that the eldership should be zealous in prosecuting the work of the church in their several fields, and a clearer division was drawn between the labours and duties of the local and the travelling ministry. The church in its work, as done by the leading quorums, has grown more and more into accord with the instructions contained in this revelation of 1894 resulting in a better condition of things and a better understanding between the labourers, as was promised in the message itself. The next heading, 1897. It will be noticed that in the reception and embodiment of the revelation found in Doctrine and Covenants as section 124, there was a marked change in the method employed that I was directed to write gives the communication the characteristic of apparent dictation. I seem to feel and recognise the presence of an administration trait. I seem to feel and recognise the presence of an administrator by whom the council was delivered to me, and I was more sensibly impressed by the personification of the spirit in form than I had ever been before if that were possible. Upon two or three occasions in my life when occupying in the pulpit, I had been permitted to preach as if consciously aware of the nearness of some divine personage. This personage, at one of these times, placed his hand upon my shoulder with a sufficient degree of pressure as to make me sensibly aware of his presence. So it was in the ministration of the dictation received in this revelation of 1897. Like the one given three years before, it dealt largely with matters connected with the procedure of the church and the calling of individuals in it. For the first time in the history of the reorganisation, the main quorums of the church were filled. My first counsellor, W.W. Blair, who had so long and faithfully wrought at my side, had been taken away the year before while at his post of duty. My other counsellor, as I have said, had been released because of disability. To cover these vacancies, Alexandra H. Smith, also called to be presiding patriarch, and Bishop Edmund L. Kelly were declared by the voice of the Lord as authorised to act as counsellors to the President, thus by divine commands virtually filling that leading quorum and providing for its proper functioning as a unit if needed. The removal of my brother Alexander from the Quorum of Twelve and the recent death of brother Thomas W. Smith had left but nine members in that, in that group. By direction through this revelation, three others, Isaac M. White, John W. White and Richard C. Evans were chosen to this office and responsibility, making that Quorum full for the first time in the existence of the reorganisation. The men called with valuable accessions to the quorum 
infusing into it new energy and enthusiasm and giving it a more complete balance in personal in personnel than it had presented before. The revelation also cleared up some doubts and questions as to the office and work of the Quorum of Seventy, to such a degree that the Quorum could also be put into a position to act as one of the coordinate quorums of the Church, as defined in section 104 of the Doctrine and Covenants. A provision was clearly made also concerning the sons of the leading men of the Church, the Lord stating that they were called to the work of their fathers and indicating that they might be chosen at any time when they should be approved or approve themselves worthy. This statement clearly providing should conditions be favourable for the filling of future vacancies that might possibly occur was reassuring for it was evidently plainly within the scope and meaning of that portion of a former revelation in which the church was admonished that it was the province of all its members to be anxiously engaged in a good cause and to do many things of their own free will and bring to pass much righteousness for the power is in them wherein they are agents unto themselves it would seem from the great volume of the word which has been received that there has ever been an effort upon the part of the supervising spirit of the master to clear the way before the reorganization carefully removing any difficult rule or supposition in order that its work having laid on a solid foundation might proceed towards its fulfilment in a like solitary in a like solidarity in understanding faith and practice and there's a bracketed part which says the foregoing observations on revelations were made by the aged president in a series of dictations given to his son and stenographer Israel A. Smith beginning October 22nd and ending November the 17th, 1914. Within a few days thereafter, he was stricken with the illness which in two weeks terminated his life. When told by his physician that he would probably not survive, on November the 26th, he called his son to his bedside and dictated the appended paragraphs as a close to his chapter on these outstanding and important experiences in his career as leader and prophet. A day or so later, he indicated to his son that he had finished the work he had had in mind and also distinctly stated to his physician and friend, Dr. Joseph Luff, that he considered his work was done. Shortly before the end, he told Dr. Luff he wished to leave a dying testimony. When the doctor advised him to make soon any statements he wished to make, he called his son to his side and asked him to make a record of that which he wished to leave as a final testimony. Breathlessly, the watchers about the couch listened for his words, Finally, they came in, in clear, distinct tones, ringing with sincerity and conviction. I know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He passed away early in the afternoon of Thursday, December the 10th, 1914, and on the following Sabbath was interred in Mound Grove Cemetery, north of Independence. There a handsome sarcophagus, the gift of many, 
who loved and revered him, marks his resting place. A.A. I will carry on the remainder in the next section. Thank you for listening.